Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, so um, last time I was talking about the notion that looking at everything through sort of equations and stuff like that, while useful in certain kinds of science, obviously it's physics, it works that way very well. Um, Generally, psychology tried to do that, and it was probably a giant mistake. Um, the idea then, instead of thinking about a physical science, think about a life science, because that's what we are. Right? So biology, and that has the overriding principle of evolution. Um, there are a lot of commonalities in how systems work. I think I mentioned the idea that you know, all perceptual <clears throat> systems work under the same set of rules. Weber's law, Fechter's power law, those things. That's how they work. And they also all transform some sort of energy in the environment into physical, uh, sorry, into neural energy. However, no one would ever argue that, well, I'm sure someone has, but they'd be insane, that, that sight, that vision, and hearing are, are just two subsystems of something we call perception. We would call them two different things. Um, so it's probably the case then that there are different kinds of learning. Um, you also have to keep in mind how each species is different. So I mentioned the idea of the of taste diversions, which show up in a lot of animals, a lot of different animal species, and how you know it's especially true in rats, where you get this huge interstimulus interval. And a lot of that is the way this evolved. Rats can't vomit, so they have to be very careful what they eat, and they pay attention to uh, novel flavors. So I think we can look at how this is the same thing. I mean, a lot of people say, well, that's just a quantitative difference, because you've got something like human eye blink conditioning, which takes an interstimulus interval of milliseconds, it takes a few trials, you compare that to, say, taste aversion learning in a rat. Heck, you can even talk about taste aversion learning in people. Totally sensible. And making sure the timer's moving out of practice. And uh, when you look at those things, you'd say, well, they both fall, they're the same rules, right? You got a conditioned stimulus, something that predicts something else, an unconditioned stimulus. You get a response. Are those just quantitative differences? Just that one is has a sti- inner stimulus intervals you, me- you measure with a clock or a calendar, and the other one you measure with, you know, a hyper accurate stopwatch. Is that really just a quantitative difference? Or is it actually a qualitative difference? Quantitative meaning number, qualitative meaning is it done in a different way? And it's kind of like making the argument that, well, snakes, if you look on some snakes, you can actually see the little nubs of where their little vestigial nubs of where long time ago in their evolutionary past, they had legs. And they knew how to use them. Anybody's easy to talk? And Over time, the legs disappear. Would you say that snakes still had legs? It's just a quantitative difference. No, I'm pretty sure you'd call that a qualitative difference, right? So it's kind of like making the argument that different perceptual systems are all the same thing. I think it's, it's a little bit crazy. I see the argument. I just think it's 
it's almost like it's kind of um, a little precious. You know, it's like, oh, well, isn't that cute? Way to go. You found that. Um, so I think maybe in psychology in general, I think learning specifically in the scope of this course, I think psychology in general, we ought to be taking a sort of view that look at overriding principles and go from there. Right? So we can look at, in biology, how they have the overriding principle of evolution. I think that should be our overriding principle, too, uh, where this is a life science. The key thing about learning is it's about correlation of events. So going one step below evolutionary thinking would be the idea of, well, what functional requirement, what thing, and I think the idea of predicting the future. And these are small moment-to-moment predictions, but it's still predicting the future, isn't it? Right? It's saying, when this happens, I expect this. This should also tell you, when are you going to learn the most? It's when this happens, and I expect this, I expect A, but B happens, I'm going to learn a great deal. This is going to be very salient to me. It's going to be very surprising. When do you learn, some, when do you learn something the most? When do you learn the most is when you find something that's surprising. It's something that you notice. Right? And that will, we will eventually come back to that idea. So the idea of predicting the future, we can talk about that as an overriding principle. Then, then we might end up with different subsystems that end up allowing an animal to predict the future. All right. Questions about that? Does that make some sense? You okay? All right. So how do we do this? Well, we typically do this in a lab setting. Um, the psychology of animal learning, study of animal learning, is, is a lab science almost exclusively. And you will often get people that will tell you that this is an artificial environment. Right? They'll say, like, yeah, sure, species X behaves like Y in the lab, and so the species Z, but that's the lab. That's not real behavior. <clears throat> that's me setting up a straw man if you can't tell my response to this is just to shut up I mean <laughs> how is it not real behavior it's still behavior right same sort of thing we run into I think, I think people that are interested in social psychology run into this all the time right the idea of well you get three people in a room <clears throat> you, do the ash, you know the ash line experiment with the three lines, which line is longer, and before you, who are the only actual subject in the experiment, say the one on the left, the two people that are confederates, say the one in the middle. And then you do that four or five times, and then you stop arguing. You just wait for them to say what, what, what the longest line is, and they just agree with them. It's not like your perceptual system's change, and you suddenly see things differently. You still know you're saying the wrong thing, but we get this conformity effect. It's beautiful. It's replicable. It's a, it's a, it's a nice, it's, it's a really cool bit of social psychology. That's good that Paul's a whole building away so he can't hear me say that there's a cool thing in social psychology. Because really there isn't. It's just, it's this far from just, I'm kidding. Um, so it's interesting that people will say that about that perhaps. You say, yeah, of course this is a, it's an artificial contrived situation, obviously it is. But, it's also a situation where we can apply this, we can take a look at this and say, in the natural world, we see conformity happen. 
We can see that happen. And it, it doesn't matter where the heck you are. Right? You can see how people will go along with a group. That happens all the time. That happens all the time. Yeah, please. What, what could make the argument that <coughs> virtually, well, not all, but virtually all environments are labs? From, you, could, you could say that, yeah. From the point of view that if you're in a work situation, there's somebody who's providing stimulus in order to get their employees to behave in a certain manner. Yep. So it's not that far off what you do in a lab. Yeah, the difference is that you don't know, you don't have control over every single variable except uh, and keep them constant except for the one that you're varying right. in the real world, right? So I mean, really, while yes, it's true that taking a rat and putting it on a maze is different than a rat foraging and I control everything, including how much food it gets, how much food it's eaten yesterday. I control the animal's weight. I control the light-dark cycle. I can try, and I can go on and on. Everything else. And then I put the animal on the maze and see how it does. But rats actually do forage in tunnels that are a lot like mazes. And you can say, well, that's clearly... We can, when we can look at that and say, yeah, that's, that's uh, something we could take away from that, look at that and say, okay, yeah, we got... Uh, this is how rats forage. Now let's see what variables actually affect it. And the only way we're ever going to know how to do that is by taking it into a lab. Right? But yeah, I, I agree with you, John. I mean, you, you, what you're saying sensible is that we're... There's constantly ch changes in the environment that affect behavior and cognition. It's the way it is. What we're doing in an experimental situation is we're looking at effects of isolation, and that's the essence of experimentation. We're trying to control conditions. Right? That's what we're doing there. We're controlling conditions. So if I'm doing an experiment and hmm, I think a cool example here. Well, I could think of rats foraging on a maze, right? So let's say talk about uh, not even better. Let's think about let's let's be more interesting. Uh, let's think about bees returning to their hive. That's kind of cool. So they have to know where their hive is. Right? So you've got to... That's a beehive. Good, eh? So there's the beehive. And I don't know, we got a tree here. And another tree over here. And the bee goes out and finds some food here. Oh, it's a flower. <coughs> Okay, so there's, there's, he goes out there, he flies around, sorry, actually she flies around, finds the food. Now, the bee flies home. That's what they do. And they fly straight home. They don't go on a circuitous route. They may go on a circuitous route out when they're looking, but on the way home, they fly straight home. Okay, so the bee just flies straight home. Whoops, Great. How did the bee do this? Well, we could make a lot of guesses, and I think a sensible guess would be it's probably got something to do with that tree right beside it. 
People said the beehive. It's probably remembers where that tree is. Right? It's probably learned that the tree is right beside the beehive. Okay? That's a pretty good guess. I don't think it's a good one. Well, it's actually a pretty good guess. <laughs> How do they know what tree? By recognizing the tree. I can't even recognize trees. You're not a bee. <laughs> That's true. See, humans can do other things. We can pull out our phone and use a GPS. <laughs> right? Or we can write it down. Or you can say to yourself, it's just to the, you know, just to the uh, left. Sorry, right, I guess, because you're always facing back. Just to the right of that tree, two meters to the right of the tree that has uh, the funny branches at the top. We can, we can just say stuff like that to ourselves. We can't do that. But what the bee can do is remember where the tree is, remember the relationship of the tree to the hive. Apparently, this is a hive that is floating in midair, uh, which is uh, also, bees are amazing. Um, amazing feat of engineering. You should never trust social insects. They're organized, and they can hurt you. Don't trust them. So, that's, yeah, and that's a pretty decent guess. And it's partway true, actually. But what we would want to do is actually control the situation so we can see how it, a, a bee learns where something is. So, instead of doing something like that, we might have, in the lab, a situation where we have a couple of landmarks and a goal right there, and then, see, so it's the same kind of relationship, and then see how the bee, how would you check to see what the bee's paying attention to in this case? Design a simple experiment for me. Yeah, please. Uh, you can change the shape beside the goal to see if Sure. Why not? Why not make it uh, instead? So let's do. So this is. We'll call this training. And the bees gonna get very good at this very quickly. Okay. So then what we're gonna do is we still have this here. What happened there? And we'll make this much triangle. See what happens then. Is it recognizing the individual? Yeah, we would call that a landmark. Recognizing that individual landmark, or is it paying attention to just the fact that there is an edge, a center, sorry, a center to this, which would be the same distance, right? Sure, there's one idea. That's a good idea. What else you got, Daniel? Uh, changing uh, the scent of the hive. Change the, change the scent, sure, we could try that. In fact, I'll tell you something, when you do an experiment like this, all the tests, you do what's called an extinction. You actually remove the goal, and you just see where the animal searches. So in fact, you're always doing you remove the idea that there's any scent. Because they don't really tend to... Uh, typically, animals, we want to see how they behave, how they search in this kind of experiment. So we would actually probably remove this. And then what you do is you have a video camera, and you record this, and you go frame by frame, and you mark where the bee's searching. So your idea is actually totally sensible. Other ideas? What else could you do? Please. Shifting like the landmark over. Sure. So still have this one here. Still have this one here. Let's put this one. Oh, I don't know here. 
Now, if it's solely following this landmark, the one that was to the, the same side of it, it should, and again, that shouldn't even be there because let's make some guesses then. It could search here. That would say it's only following that landmark. It could search here and think that its whole world's been turned upside down and it's wrong place. Could search, we're going what, about one to four, so about there, so. Could search about there. Could be using the ratio. So one on one side and four units on the other. There's all kinds of different possibilities that we can't do if we look at this in the wild. We see it in the wild, we see the behavior in the wild, but we want to be able to control conditions enough that we can make a statement about how, in this case, honeybees navigate. Right? How they find a goal. There's a lot of other things you could do, too. You could, uh, let's see. You change the colors. Maybe pay attention to color. You could change, instead of making these, maybe these are solid boxes, you know, like actual boxes. Maybe you just make wireframes. Maybe they're paying attention to edges. What about changing the size? One of the neat things you could do is make the one on the right so we'll leave the one on the left. Eh, fine. Let's make the one on the right smaller. Half as big. Okay? Now, let's just, what would happen here? What if they searched here? This would now tell us that, in fact, what they're using, what they're paying attention to, is the size of this image, the image size on their retina. <coughs> no, that'd be quite twice as close, wouldn't it? Yeah, listen. So twice as close. Yeah. So right there. They're just making it so the size of the object in their, in their field of view is the same size. So they're actually not paying attention to distances as much as they're paying attention to retinal size. My friend Ken, you hear me talk a lot about Ken Chang, Ken Chang, sort of guy I've ever met. Ken says that bees, first of all, are pound for pound the smartest animal in the universe. And secondly, that bees don't see in 3D, they see in 2.5D. So what they're really doing is they're not paying attention to depth so much as size, so that it's almost a third dimension. The representation is a two and a half dimensional representation, which doesn't really mean anything, but it sort of gets the idea across. It's not about depth, it's about actual retinal size. So they're not doing, using what we would call binocular cues, it's a monocular cue. Pretty damn cool. It's pretty damn cool. All right. Questions about that? So you see the idea. I mean, you have to get into the lab. You can see stuff out in the wild. There's nothing wrong with that. But you have to get into the lab to see stuff. There's nothing wrong with looking at stuff in the real world. That's, in fact, exactly where, where I started out here. Um, a lot of the work I did early in my career was on um, memory and food storing birds. And people had been observing birds store food and recover it for years. You can go back into the 1700s into texts written by naturalists. And they talk about watching um, jays and, 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 and uh, titmice storing food. 
and finding it later. And all of them just sitting there going, I don't know how they do it, but I think they remember where it is. Right? And then eventually some people picked it up and ran with it in the late 70s through the 90s. And now we know how they do it. Story's told. It's a good story, by the way. And people are still working on some of the stuff. So it's a great place then to check the generality of your findings. <coughs> the field. So because if something only happens in the lab, as much as I've been sitting here making a, a plea to look at things in the lab, if something only happens in the lab and doesn't happen in the world at all, how interesting is it? So, for example, going back to our social psychology example, if this happens in the lab, but people never, ever <coughs> conforming like this in the real world, how interesting is this? Yeah, not very, right? I mean, it's there, but it's not that interesting. Hmm. So, the biggest thing I think is it's, to me, the field, the world, the environment is the, is the place to get ideas. I think it's a great place to get ideas. And there are times when you have to test things out in the world. Right? So you have to run a field experiment. One of the first, when people were looking at food stores, right? When people were looking at food storing birds, there were sort of two competing hypotheses. One of them was that birds were recovering their own seeds. They would store them and recover them. The other one was that birds were all recovering each other's seeds. So it was just like they were storing them out there in the world and they would just then go find them. Well, that's a hard thing to test. So one of the things that originally this was done by, jeez, uh, I think it was uh, Sherry... Avery and uh, Stevens. And I think that's 81. And what they did is they had animals out, they, 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 had, they were looking at marsh tits in, in, in White and Wood uh, outside Oxford, and they gave them seeds to store. Now you're thinking, what do they do, follow them? Well, no, they gave them radioactive seeds to store. So they were, <laughs> they were pine nuts that had a radioactive marker on them. Nothing that could hurt the animal but enough that you could find the seeds in the Geiger counter. So they would take the seeds in the morning, the birds, and they'd store them. And then these guys would go out into the woods with, with a Geiger counter and find the seeds. And a third of the seeds, they would leave where they were. A third of them, they would move over 10 centimeters. And a third of them, they would move over 30 centimeters. And you think to yourself, well, 
If everybody's finding everybody else's food, it shouldn't matter if you move them. It shouldn't matter if you move them because you should be able to find everybody else's seeds. But if you're only finding your own seeds and you've got a pretty good memory for it, if I've moved your seeds 10 centimeters, you're like, yeah, I'm screwed. I can't find them. And that's what happened. They went back days later and found that the ones that they moved were still there. And the ones that they hadn't moved were gone. Oh, they're recovering their own seeds. Right? So that was a great, it's a great example of a really good field experiment. So you can get ideas. You can even test stuff there. So the idea of testing theories, which tends to be what we do in theories or statements about cause and effects, right? Um, it's best done under controlled conditions. Because then we can say, yes, X causes Y. We, we, can't, we can't say that if we haven't, if we also say, but it might be Z. Then we aren't really testing the theory anymore. Right? Okay. Questions so far? It's good. Now, I'm going to talk a bit about research and methods and stuff just because I, I want to get that out of the way, give you a little refresher. I know most of you guys have taken 20. I'm going to teach 21, 27 in 15 minutes. So, causation. Um, you know, we want to make causal inferences. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to say that X causes Y. We need covariation. It must be the case that as X increases, Y increases, or as X increases, Y decreases, or as X changes, Y changes somehow. We need two things to vary together. We need covariation. We need temporal precedence. Causes come before effects. That's how it works in this universe. Right? Don't give me some postmodern bullshit. Things, causes come before effects. Those are pretty, you know, that, that's actually pretty easy to do with design. You just change something and then see what happens. That's research design. And we have to eliminate alternative explanations. And unless you can satisfy all three of these, you can't say that X causes Y. There's a great, one of my favorite examples of this is an experiment that was done by, is it actually another sort of social psychology field experiment done by Barron, I think, in 73. And the idea was that emotions, that, 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 that you could make, put people in a situation that normally be aggressive, Okay? And then what we're going to do is we're going to change their emotions and see if we can stop them from being aggressive. Nice. So it's a pretty cool experiment. What happens is you've got a stop sign or a stop light, right? A stop light. And then you've got a car that's here. And this is being driven by the Confederate. It's actually being driven by a graduate student being driven by a graduate student. And then a car pulls up behind it. 
in this, where is your subject? And the Confederate <laughs> just waits when the light turns green, doesn't move. This makes people angry. You then measure how angry they are. How could you measure how angry they are? You measure it by number of honks on the horn and by number of obscene gestures. And that's how it was done. It's a very clever way to do it, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's aggression when you're driving. It's a very clever idea. Okay, so we can make people aggressive. I think we've all been in this situation. Someone isn't paying attention here. You're like, light's green. waiting for any particular shade of green? You know? So you beep a few times. You just count that. It's really easy. Okay. Now, let's make people be a little... Let's have emotions that are... incompatible with aggression. One of them is laughter, humor. So they had a graduate student walk by between these two cars dressed up like a clown. So we got a clown. I can't draw, even remotely draw a clown. <laughs> so we got the clown condition. Nice. Okay. That would just be weird to me, but... And a little creepy. What about sympathy, right? Sympathy. So we're going to have someone on crutches. <coughs> Broken leg. By the way, it's the same person. Broken leg comes through. Walking on crutches. By the way, all these subjects are men. We're going to have a woman walked by in a bikini. It's California, by the way. This isn't... So perhaps that's... I don't know. Maybe they do that in California. People just walk by wearing what in essence is their underwear out in the street. I don't know. Sexual harassment. Okay. Nice. And we're going to measure. We have our control condition. So I can show you roughly what happened. So the control condition, there's a lot more aggression than there is in the funny condition. <coughs> the sympathy condition, uh, let's see, call that SY, I guess. And the uh, sexual condition. Sure, that's great. So what do we have? We have covariation. We change one variable, the other variables change. We're partway there. We've got temporal precedence. Cause comes before effect. Effect is the gestures and the beeping of the horn. Beautiful. Have we eliminated alternative explanations? Is there an alternative explanation here to what caused this effect? <clears throat> is there another explanation other than incompatible emotions with aggression? Can you think of another explanation? Oh, please, yes, sir. Oh, I could have just been like distraction. Yeah, that's exactly what it could have been. That's what it is. There's no control. We should have had two control groups. We should have just had a group where the 25-year-old female graduate student is walking by just wearing regular clothes and just walking between two cars. It's not there. Really clever experiment. I don't know what would have happened with the distraction. I have no idea. I suspect, in fact, that it would be something like, so we'll just have a, 
what are we going to call that other control? I suspect it'd be something like that. I think there's probably something to be said about the emotion thing. There's probably something there. But there's also the distraction. The thing is, that's just my guess. I don't know. So that's a waste of time and money and time. It's clever as hell. It's actually a very clever little field experiment. It's something you probably ethically couldn't do today uh, because you can't make people angry in public with that. You can't make people angry and, and, and get them, and then, you know, just let them go. You've got to let them know they were in an experiment and then don't go home and kick it off because some jerk didn't go ahead and move. And that's sensible. You don't, you don't want people... Because you're the one causing the change in, in a moment, and you're making them angry. So there's got to be other, there'd be other ways you can probably do this in a lab situation. Nonetheless, it's a very clever experiment, but there is an alternative explanation. So based on those results, we cannot say that incompatible emotions with aggression... Um, make people less likely to be aggressive. We, we can't say that. Based on that, I, I don't know anything else about that literature. I just remember reading that study in graduate school for a research methods class. So you have to be able to eliminate alternative explanations. So, sadly, this now becomes a giant waste of time. Right? And it was probably somebody's master's thesis, too, which is the horrible thing about it. Okay. So we have different theories to explain something. So we want to judge them. The first thing theories have to be is falsifiable. They must make predictions that are precise enough to be shown to be false. We must make precise enough predictions to be shown to be false. You know, some of these are going to be very straightforward. You think of a lot of things in physics where there's a formula and it says this equals this. And well, if that doesn't equal that, you're wrong. That was easy. This is actually a pretty, this is a precise enough theory. The incompatible emotion idea it just wasn't tested properly, sadly. I'm sure eventually it was. I, I don't know. So sometimes we might have a theory that you think about something like, I don't know, um, there are different memory systems. Wow. How are you going to test that? That's a little broad. So you want to eventually drill down, get it down, narrow it down to the point where you can say, okay, what is the prediction of the theory that would make it false and what would make it true? And you can have a theory that doesn't make precise predictions, so it can't be disproved. It is therefore a useless thing. So you think about going back, and you've probably heard people talk about this before. You think about Freud. It's completely useless. It's useless because if you say to me that the idea is that you want to have sex with the same-sex parent and kill the opposite-sex parent, 
And then I ask you, and you say, no, I don't. I say, ah, I see, you're repressing. My theory is correct. <laughs> and if you say yes, I call the authorities. Either way, my theory is correct. So, I guess it could be true, but we can't test it. It's not testable. So it's not really a very good theory. This is like a lot of cases where anything paranormal <clears throat> is not science. It, it can't be, right? So if you say, I'm going to read your mind. How? Well, you know, huh? Gotta read your mind. And then if I always say, yeah, well, you, uh, there was too many negative vibes in the room. You can't test that. You can't test something that says it doesn't actually follow the laws of nature. You can't scientifically test the big question of, is there God? You could probably make predictions, but you could. Dawkins argues that. I think he's probably got a point. But you can't say, we're going to use science to see if there's a God or not. I don't think you're going to get very far. I don't think you're going to get very far. No. Let's see, an all-seeing, all-knowing thing that runs everything. Okay, gotcha? Okay, good. So you're going to show me that it exists. All right. If I don't find evidence, but it runs everything, so it could just not want to be found. <laughs> so there goes science trying to do that. So just, you know, right? I could make probably specific... I could make maybe make probabilistic statements, perhaps, but it's kind of tough. It's kind of tough. So those kind of things can't be tested because they don't make precise enough predictions to be shown to be false. It's like when people say, so the burden of proof then is on the experiment, or the person stating something. Someone says, you know, in 1947, there was a crash at Roswell, and that was, uh, you know what that was? It's a UFO. And I they say, no, it wasn't. Well, you, and I said, well, you give me evidence? Do you have evidence it wasn't? No, <laughs> see, it doesn't work that way. And that's when you just walk away from people. It's like, so I'm sorry, go grab an education, I'll be over here. <laughs> because you can't, the burden of proof is on the person making the statement. Right? You also want something that's simple. Simple and straightforward. Think about, oh, I don't know, heliocentrism versus geocentrism. So is the sun the center of the solar system or the Earth? Yes. By the way, it's, it's the sun. Um, mm -hmm. Those of you who are scoring at home, it's the sun. Okay, you know what? There's actually, you can make predictions using a geocentric model. You actually can. The Ptolemaic version of how things work. That, that, you can do that. 
It's a really complicated set of equations, but it can be done. Or you could have a really simple one that says there are sort of elliptical orbits around the sun. Oh, it's the better theory. Turns out it's the correct one. Occam's razor, the simpler the theory tends to more likely to be the more correct theory. The more general something is, the better. So there's nothing wrong with very specific theories. Very specific theories that talk about very, very specific phenomena. Those are great. But something that applies to, the more stuff that applies to, the better. Heliocentrism, for example, doesn't just apply to our solar system, it applies to solar systems. So when, 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 when astronomers now are finding exoplanets, right, planets outside our solar system, they don't go, gee, well, I wonder how it works there, I wonder if the sun goes around the moon there. No. In fact, they find the planets because they see the changes in, in, the, in the, the star as the planets go around them. So the more general, the better. Um, something that's fruitful is good, meaning that if it causes a lot of research to be done. So... You may come up with what you think is great theory, and you talk about it a lot, and you, you, you publish some work, and you do, and no one else runs with it. It probably isn't just, but it isn't just, it isn't because like no one likes you. It's probably because there wasn't enough there to do anything with. And theories have to make predictions. So if I was to look at something, and I talked about over, overriding principle of biology, if I was to look at evolution by natural selection, it's great here. It's beautiful. Evolution makes falsifiable predictions. Some people say it doesn't. Those people actually haven't been paying attention to evolutionary theory in the last hundred years. It actually makes very specific predictions about what should happen. Right? So you think about things like in, uh, those of you who took, my uh, behavior class, you took uh, um, behavioral ecology with Ishvan last year, you know that p- precise predictions happen there. It's a simple theory. Evolution is so simple that anyone can misunderstand it. Old anonymous quote. But it's actually so simple that you can literally explain it in about five minutes to someone who knows nothing about biology. I've done that. I did that in a they have these, uh, they're all over the world, these talks called Ignite. You get, 20, you get five minutes, 20 slides, and the slides advance every 15 seconds, whether you like it or not. And I explained evolution in five minutes. Because it's easy. There's variation among living things. This variation is heritable. The environment selects which things survive. Oh, gee, I did it in 12 seconds. Evolution's easy. It's really, really, I mean, okay, Origin of Species is that thick a book, but it's just examples after he says it. It says what it is. More general, the better. Well, let's see, it applies to living things. That's a pretty good theory. That's okay. Fruitful, let's see. We had no biology, now we have biology. That's a pretty good theory. Makes predictions, talk about that. So, as far as in the life sciences, evolution by natural selection is great. Right? Um, We can think of stuff in psychology. There's a theory 
that we'll talk about in this class called the Rescorla Wagner model. And we'll eventually get there, don't worry about it yet. Probably not till November. No, that's not true. Probably October. Um, the Scroll Wagner model, what it does is it models how classical conditioning works. Models how classical conditioning works. Well, it actually, um, it's precise enough that, we have to worry about this right now. Oh, look, that's easy. It's, a, it's an equation. That's a pretty precise theory. So it's going to be pretty falsifiable. If, if, if this thing, delta V, that's the change in learning, doesn't equal what the numbers show, then it's wrong. That's easy. Simple. Yeah, look at that. I know you don't know what any of these things mean right now, but the point is, you, if, if I gave you those numbers, the numbers for, uh, for K, well, it's actually a lambda, but whatever, and V sum, could you solve that? I freaking hope so. It's multiplication. There's also a takeaway in there, as you can see. There's pluses and minuses. So, I mean, not that hard. General. It applies to classical conditioning. That's pretty good in general, right? Every animal tested ever has shown classical conditioning. Every, all of them. From 302 neurons, the nematode to right here. Now that's pretty general. Fruitful. Well, it came out in 19... It would have been 68, something like that. People are still talking about it today. Okay. And again, makes predictions. So that's pretty good. So... That wasn't an exhaustive list of what makes a theory good, but it's, it's a list that I've taught a lot of this stuff, the research methods before. I'm so happy I don't teach 2127. I'm so happy I don't teach it. I'm so happy I don't teach it. I have taught it. I taught it last time in 1997, and it, it almost made me cry. It bores the shit out of me. It's good to know, and it's important to know, but it's boring. Not unlike this course. Um, it's tedious. And for some reason, people find it hard, and I never could understand why people found it hard. Other things I can see why people find it hard. That I'd go, how do you not understand this? Drove me nuts. So I, one of the things to think about is something all people, all science, when people start out in science, the, one of the things that you want to be aware of is something that, uh, I where I read this in a book, what was the name of the book? How to Think Straight About Psychology. Great little book. And he talks about the Einstein syndrome. And that's the idea that all science should be revolutionary and that all scientists should come up with huge ideas that change everything. And that's just simply not how it works. There was an Einstein, there was a Darwin, there was a Newton, and then there was all of us. These people come along once in, oh, 50, 100 years. The rest of us plug away. We often plug away and then see these things and go, oh, of course, why didn't I think of that horribly simple idea? Because you're not Darwin, you're not Einstein, and you're not Newton, that's why. 
Newton figures out, you know, physics, also just invents calculus, because it's like, well, you know, there's no math to do this. I guess I'll invent a kind of math. Wow. So you've got to keep that in mind. Like, a lot of times people look at simple experiments, like the Ashline experiment, or some of this B work we were talking about, and they say, well, what, what use was that? Well, every single piece of science doesn't blow the lid off all science. It doesn't work that way. So when you read experiments in, in isolation, and don't know the literature in some area, you're not going to get the importance of a single piece of, piece of data. And in fact, most data isn't that interesting or important. But eventually, it's coalesced into something that gets interesting and important, right? So how do we collect data? Or how do we test theories? Well, we collect data. We do experiments, right? So you can... Um, it starts out a lot of times with anecdotal stuff, people just telling you something. Now remember, anecdotes aren't evidence. The plural of anecdote is not data. So no matter how many times you say you know a guy who did X, Y, or Z, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But they can be useful for generating hypotheses. The idea that people saw birds storing food and recovering food eventually led to people like Dave Sherry et al. deciding that they wanted to see how they were finding the food. So they're not very good for testing theories, though. It's the man-who problem. I know a guy that, and you always hear about this, we put way too much emphasis, especially in the popular sort of press, about things like you find somebody who's lived to be 104, and then they ask, well, how have you lived your life? And they say, well, eat two pounds of bacon a day, smoke a pack of cigarettes, and drink a quart of whiskey. And then people are like, well, I guess that works. No, that really won't work. That would be very bad for you. Probably not the bacon nearly as much as probably the cigarettes, the worst thing, followed pretty closely by the liquor. But we seem to really, in fact, there's a, this is just a problem with reasoning. I mean, we have evidence from all these reams and reams of data. But yeah, I know a guy. Doesn't matter, you know a guy. So not very good for testing theories. Observational stuff is useful. You need to operationalize something here. So you have to, if you're watching an animal do something, if you're watching squirrels store nuts in the park, you have to be able to say, when did the animal store food? And you have to say, well, how am I going to say what a storing episode is or not? Right? I've done stuff my master, my, my honors thesis, actually, I had a great big board that had, uh, it was a size, like a four by eight sheet of plywood, and it had four food cups here, and then four food cups here. It was done with rats. Okay. The food cups had, oh, how did this go again? I think 15, 10, 5, and one food pellet. Same thing here. Okay. Well, what I wanted the animals to do was go in the order 15, 10, 5, 1, expecting them to do that. But I expect them to be more likely to do that 
Well, first off, and then I had these big cues here at the side of the thing I can rotate around. It's a long story. They really aren't that. These, this is not really a very good experiment. Well, one, one of the six is good. The other five are just horrible. But first thing is, I have to determine if the animal has looked in the food cup. Well, I videoed it. I watched it on video. So I'm sitting in another room, had a video camera, and I'd watch, and I'd just write down the order it went in. I could see him poke his nose in. But what if he pokes his nose in and doesn't eat? Like, what if he makes a mistake, right? Because they're going to go where the most food is. But what if he mistakenly goes here first and doesn't eat the one pellet? Do I count that? Well, I could or I couldn't. But I, what I have to do is operationalize, right? I have to, I have to say, I'm going to count that as a look. Now, I made it a lot easier later on. I put these lids on top of them. They were pieces of um, metal. And the, the rat had to actually knock the piece of metal off. And I thought that would be easy, except sometimes they just sort of move it over a little bit. They wouldn't knock it right off. Well, I've got to count that. Eventually, that's, that's what I did. I, I counted those as, you know, as long as it moved it. And when, if I saw it put its nose in, I counted that as a look. Now, in that case, I had to actually get somebody to also watch videotapes of the rats because, I mean, I know what I expected to happen. It wouldn't have been fair had I just done it myself. So I actually had a person who volunteered to work in our lab when I was an undergrad, and her job over the February break was to watch 39 hours of rats on videotape and score every single one. We agreed about 98% of the time, which is good. So we just used my scoring after that, but we had to make sure. And if I don't know whatever happened to Allison Geffen, but thank you. First year student wanted to get some experience, so she watched 39 hours of rats. Everyone starts the same way. I come in, I hold up a sign that says Rat 7, Trial 103. And they get 104, and I put the rat on. <sighs> Poor kid, I don't know why she did it. <laughs> Whoops. Another possible example here, um, we could look at imprinting, where what imprinting is is when an animal, uh, we talked a little bit about this in there. There's also, so we talk about sexual imprinting. Filial imprinting also is when, uh, sorry, when you learn who your mom is. Sexual imprinting is when you learn who you mate with, right? I think I got that backwards in there. So Conrad Lorenz way back when discovered this where he had these, uh, these geese and they hatched and the first thing they saw were his boots because he was wearing rubber boots because he was around geese and he'd been in the park and there's just shit everywhere. So he's got these boots on. So the first thing the geese see is his boots. So they followed him around whenever he wore the boots, like the boots were their mommy. Yeah. And he immediately said, this isn't learning. Which struck a lot of us, well, I should say us, it was well before I was born. But those, if you read this stuff, you say, let's see, that's something at time one, something at time two, there's a change in behavior. That sounds like learning to me. But what he was saying was it wasn't the same as classical edition and opera edition. Yeah, but probably it might be true. 
the interesting thing is, with this observational approach, people learn right away about about uh, imprinting. He won a Nobel Prize for that work. It's really great stuff. So some really good stuff happened. Some really great stuff happened. But eventually, he was shown that it was shown that it wasn't. It may not be nearly as special as he thought it was. It's still cool. Because if you, if you get an animal to imprint on a pair of boots, you can actually switch it to a goose if it's a goose. If you get an animal to imprint on a bird and it's a goose, some other bird, it probably won't switch. So it's like it's hooked up to pay attention to an animal. It's funny. Years ago, jeez, uh, like 2005? 2006, maybe? Uh, there's a farm in town somewhere that has, I don't know where it could be. They take care of animals and stuff. And they... they uh, take like stray animals in and animals that have had trouble. And they had these, uh, they had a, I think it was a, it was a horse. And then these geese were hatched and the geese followed the horse around. So this reporter from the CTV comes, to, he used to ask me a couple questions, I had behavior questions now and then. And he said, I got one, I think he'll stump you, so I'm just going to call him, he's going to show up. I said, okay. So he comes in and he says that this has happened. And he says, would you have any comment on this? He thinks he said it's just imprinting. This was discovered a very long time ago. Uh, and I even explained things about how in the IMHV, which is a part of a bird brain, there's a 47, 47, 57% increase in MMDA receptors after imprinting has happened. I'm talking all this stuff. And he's I, obviously I was upset that he thought I had got him and I didn't. So then that night I put the news on. And they show the, the video of the, of the geese following this horse. And then they go to... Exp- He's, I think he used the word imprinting, and then it flips over to me, and it's David, Dr. David R. Broadback, associate professor in psychology at the university. The question that they left in, because at, at the end he jokingly said, do you think the geese are happy? I said, I don't know, the goose is happy, the horse is happy, uh, everybody's happy. That's what they left in. <laughs> that was my expert comment. And then, of course, because it's a cute human interest story, it ends up being picked up by, like, CTV Newsnet. And you know how that works? Every 15 minutes, it's the same news. So for two days, I was seen, so it's every 15 minutes, so that's 24 times 4, so it's 48, 96 times a day for two days. So 192 times, I was seen on national television... Say, I don't know, everybody's happy, I'm happy. <laughs> I got emails from, from colleagues all over the, the, the country. We're like, way to go, Dave. <laughs> so I don't talk to the media anymore. Uh, not that they didn't call either. But uh, on camera, let's say that. I, I've talked to people in the newspaper, but I like say, I say things like, now you can't use this. Oh, you can use this. Read back to me what I just said. I don't want that thing to happen again where I look like an idiot on TV. So, I mean, that, that's great work. The imprinting stuff was tremendous, right? Uh, you can test things, of course, there's correlational experiments. It's still not causation, so you can obviously test to see if X goes with Y. And that's mostly not... We typically don't do that in learning kind of stuff. Because... Um, well, it's technically more of a lab science. The big problem with correlations often is what direction does the correlation go? Does X cause Y or does Y cause X? 
Right. It's pretty clear that uh, IQ goes uh, correlates positively with income. That's just the thing. It does. But is it the case that smarter people get better jobs or better jobs since they make more money? Or that the better jobs get smarter people? I don't know. It's probably both, actually. But we can't really make a statement like that. There's correlation. And, of course, experiments, which is what we tend to wor uh, worry more about. We vary one variable or more, and we observe the other variable, and we hold all the other variables constant. This is the simplest kind of experiment. We vary the independent variable, we observe the dependent variable, we hold all the other variables constant, and we got ourselves... Then we can actually make the statement about... We can look out for confounding variables. That's what we had here. This was a confound. The person walking by is a confound because the distraction is... One of the things we have to worry about in drug experiments, for example, is uh, placebo effects. Right? You can give people or rats a drug, and actually there is an effect of getting that drug. And you might think, with rats you get a placebo effect? Mm -hmm. Sure. There's an effect of being picked up. There's an effect of being injected with something. So in drug experiments with, 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 with animals, with, especially with rats or something, there's all kinds of control groups. There's a control group that gets no drug. There's a control group that gets a shot of saline. There's a control group that gets picked up and shown the needle. There's a, picked up, a control group that gets picked up and the needle goes in and it comes out and nothing's been put in. And then there's actually the drug group. Because there has to be. All those things are going to be stressful things for the animal. Right? Think about that. If, if something, you know, I don't know, three orders of magnitude bigger than you, so a thousand times your size, pick you up and show you a needle the size of you. That'd be a little stressful. And then with humans, we get these effects all the time. We get the effect of like, I, I, when I was a postdoc, there was a graduate student doing work at Western, and she was doing work on the effects of alcohol and perception. So she would get volunteers, uh, usually graduate students, to be in her experiments. And in these experiments, um, You'd be given either grain alcohol or and soda water, so basically cheap vodka and soda water, or just soda water, and you'd drink it, and then you would get you'd have to go do the uh, uh, do the experiments. Usually these were visual perception things. And you think, well, how do people know how do people not know that they're in the alcohol group. If you put enough peppermint oil in something, can't tell. It's just so strongly mint flavored that you can't taste the alcohol. So she'd get, give people like five drinks in like 20 minutes and then get them to do the experiment. And these were people showed this sort of, it's like a placebo effect or an expectation effect. They would actually, and it's kind of interesting, people thought they were, everybody thought they were drunk. But half the people weren't. And after the experiment, she'd say you were in the control group, and people would go, I can't feel kind of hammered, I can't. And you'd blow in a breathalyzer, and she'd go, no, look, you blew a zero. Oh, and then they'd be fine. <laughs> the other people, of course, had to hang out uh, until they blew a, uh, below the legal limit, and she had actually Penny would take their car keys. Because she can't, she'd let them watch DVDs and uh, 
eat popcorn. And you can always tell people that, like all these graduate students in the summer that have been in these experiments, because they'd be walking around at 11 o'clock in the morning, kind of hungover. Oh, I drank too much at 9 o'clock in the morning. So, what? Oh, I was in that experiment. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> so we want to have a lot of times double blind procedures. You even want to have that. You might want to have that in a situation. You might think that's all just drug experiments, things like that. Well, you might double blind. Yeah. Well, the rats usually don't know what the experiments about, or the monkeys. But you might want to have the experimenters to be blind about what experiment they're, but what uh, condition they're running. And that's kind of hard to do because they're running the experiment. So you might have to hire somebody to score the video. I talked about the student who did that for my honors thesis. But you also might want to have somebody who is actually running the experiment itself. But they don't know anything about the experiment. They didn't know anything about the experiment. One of my favorite examples of this is an experiment on Lucas. I think you talked about this in, in uh, animal behavior last year. But it's Oldhoff, uh, Iden, Roberts, 97, I believe. And what they were doing was they had these squirrel monkeys, Jake and Elwood, because Bill Roberts likes the Blues Brothers. So the squirrel monkeys are named Jake and Elwood. And they'd be shown a card that had maybe this on it, a five, and a card that had that on it, a three. And underneath the five is five pieces of peanut. And underneath the three is three pieces of peanut. And as soon as they picked up the five, they got to eat the five pieces of peanut, but then they had the little, little tray rule they couldn't get the other. They eventually learned what the symbols mean. That's actually not quite that really surprising. The question is, do they know what five and three are? What if they tried to, tried to add them? So eventually they test them like this. With, uh, let's go with uh, two, six. So eventually they've learned this, just treat them with that, and they're almost perfect on day one. Wow, pretty cool. Uh, I was Bill Roberts' postdoc then, and I was, I was, maybe we were all talking about the results, and we were all freaked out. It's like, this is amazing, this happened right away. And boy, did they have trouble publishing this stuff. Because everyone said, you ever heard of the Clever Hans experiments? You know about Clever Hans? You know about Clever Hans, right? It's the German horse. Of course, his name is Hans. Guy in Italy with Luigi. His name is Horse Hans. So this guy in the 1800s in Germany has got a horse. And the horse can count and do math. So people would say, come up to the horse and say, ah, so what is seven plus two? And the horse would go... Nine, of course, German falls over. No, so I shouldn't have chosen. <laughs> Established, I don't speak German. I just speak uh, like this, you know. So, people are pretty amazed. It's clever haunts. 
this is before the TV, before the internet, so people didn't have anything else to do, so they'd go to shows of talking and you know, counting animals. Have you seen the counting animals in Stuttgart? So people would go. I knew two Germans. There's the calm German like this, and the one screaming, because it's silent. So what happens is, people get all excited, and then someone goes, um, what if we took his owner, who's, I never remember his name. The horse everybody remembers. The guy who owned the horse, I can't remember. Let's call him Wolfgang. So they take, take that probably isn't his name. So they do a control where they take Wolfgang and put him over here. Can't see Hans, guess what? Hans can't count. <laughs> Hans is actually getting cues from Wolfgang, or whatever his name is. Siegfried. I'm going to use German names. Heinrich. So, what ha- what's happening here is the owner, and he's not doing this on purpose. This guy is not a scammer. What he's doing is the horse can detect when the owner has this look on his face, like, yeah, he's at the right place. He should stop now. So the owner's like, That's not, that wasn't that obvious. Everybody would have caught that. So that's what he said about this experiment. They said, well, this can't be. This is, this is way too clever haunts for us. So in fact, what they ended up doing is hiring all these people who were told nothing about the experiment. One, and, and they scored it. The people putting the, the, the cards in didn't even see the cards. It was just elaborate. And it still worked. But this wasn't, it was like, like was double blind, triple blind, it was like quadruple blind. It was all these different levels eventually getting to a point where the person putting the trays in for the monkeys had no idea what the hell was even going on. Couldn't even see the monkeys, didn't know there were monkeys. Uh, probably there were monkeys, didn't even hear the monkeys. You kind of smell the monkeys, though, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but it eventually worked out, and it's great work. I love this stuff. Um, but... It took a long time, and that's because, you know, there's a history out there, and the Clever Hans is always the example. So, a lot of times we end up doing is comparing different groups, um, or we might look at change over time. In fact, usually we're looking at two groups or more, and we're looking at change over time, because change over time, learning is always change over time, isn't it? Right, getting better and better at something, or worse and worse at something. So we're going to change or compare learning rates over time of a couple of groups. One of the key things you have to do is systematically replicate stuff. One of the things that always bothers me about people doing a psych honors thesis is they go, well, somebody's already done this. Well, so? Just because somebody's already done it doesn't make it a bad experiment. What you want to do is change it a little bit and see what happens. I know that's boring, but when you change things a little bit and see if it's a general finding, if it still holds up, then it probably matters. Right? So you systematically change things, systematically replicate. You replicate something and make very small changes, or you might throw in another variable. That's how science is supposed to work. Now you know what statistical methods are used to see if the group differences are real, meaning they aren't just from sampling. Right.
And I don't really feel like explaining statistics because you all have to take statistics and you all will eventually learn about it. And some of you already have taken all the statistics classes, so I would just leave that down. And on that note, I will continue talking with this stuff on Wednesday. Thanks, guys. podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.